I have the, uh, the great and unique privilege and joy of exploring God's Word with you over the next uh, couple of weeks this morning and then next week while, uh, as the elders mentioned, Pastor Chip and uh, Donna are off enjoying some time of training, and I know you'll join me in praying for them that this time would be uh, fruitful for their ministry but also edifying for them personally, and we look forward to their, to their return. So this means that we're going to take a a brief step away from our church's examination of John's gospel. And for our time together this week, uh, and next week actually, I'd like us to consider uh, what we'll call the the biblical and theological aspects of mercy. Okay, so not not the cultural context in which we find mercy or the social constructs that we find it in, but the mercy of God as shown toward his chosen people and as revealed to us here in scripture. So to do that, we're going to examine two passages. This week, we're going to look at a very familiar uh, story, one that I know that you're all very familiar with, and we're going to see what it is that Jesus teaches about this concept of mercy. And then next week, uh, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament, and we're going to see how mercy is applied throughout biblical history, to see mercy in action, if you will. So that's our roadmap for the next two weeks. What does Scripture teach about mercy, and then how does mercy appear in biblical history. So I think a fair question to ask as we get started is why this topic, why right now? And I'm sure that many of you have seen that we, we live in a cultural moment where we certainly place great value on holding people accountable for things. We in our culture love to hold folks accountable. We love to find someone to blame. And then when we find that person, a couple things happen. First of all, we cancel them immediately. And if we're lucky, we can find two or three or four or five things more to blame them for, and then ultimately we remove them from the public sphere. And we call this all uh, the pursuit of justice, right? The, The pursuit of accountability and the pursuit of justice. The challenge from the Christian biblical worldview, though, is to acknowledge that pursuing that kind of accountability and that kind of justice without mercy is incomplete. So that said, uh, let's begin looking at what Scripture scripture teaches about mercy, specifically what Jesus said about it through examining this very familiar story, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to consider a couple things. First, we're going to look at the historical setting into which this teaching is placed. And then second, we're going to look at the parable and, and see if we can find four characteristics of mercy that Jesus offers to us through this teaching. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter, and we're going to start at verse 25. And let's read this familiar story together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to an innkeeper, and said, Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading and the hearing of your holy and perfect word. So as I mentioned before, uh, this is a passage that I am certain uh, all of you are familiar with. We have been taught this parable since our very earliest days in Sunday school. And I'd also venture to say that this story is as popular outside the church as it is for our gathering here this morning. And you don't really need to be a confessing Christian to be familiar with this tale. I think one of the reasons why this story is so widely accepted is because on its surface, if you do a surface-level reading of this story, it's really not all that controversial, right? What do you have? You have a, a man who's traveling along, a good man, a Samaritan. He finds someone who's in need. He provides need. And then you have another good man, Jesus, saying, that's good, go and do likewise. At some point or another, we've each been told that providing for those who are in a bad spot, for those who are less fortunate, is good and it's noble, and it's something that we should emulate. The problem is that a surface-level reading of this passage is insufficient. What's happening here in this exchange between this lawyer and Jesus is, in fact, very controversial. In fact, it would be teachings like these that would highlight Jesus ultimately as a threat to the principalities of the day. But why? Why would a teaching about mercy resonate so, so vitriolically in the hearts of those whom saw, who saw Jesus as a threat? Why would this be controversial? What's going on here? So let's look at the setting, the historic setting, because we're talking about a point in time where this happened between Jesus and this expert in the law. Luke explains that this, uh, this lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question, and this context suggests that Jesus was, was at the center, likely, of a gathering where he was the one who was teaching. Gatherings like these where, where scriptural or moral or legal topics were discussed were often overseen by someone who was a recognized authority, typically someone who had credentials. So the person who was doing the teaching would be recognized by the people who were there as a person with authority. So in this setting, we can envision Jesus teaching at the gathering, speaking in this way so as to convey authority, and then this lawyer stands up, and then when we say lawyer too, we're not talking about a lawyer in the modern sense, we're talking about someone who would have been a scholar in the biblical law. This lawyer stands up, and he asks the question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's, it's probable that this is a question that the lawyer thinks he already knows the answer to. And what he's trying to do, and Luke tells us as much, is he's trying to set a trap for Jesus. He's asking him a gotcha question in public in front of this gathering uh, so as to undermine Jesus' authority and, and maybe to embarrass him a little. Jesus, obviously, knows this is a trap. And so in return, he sets one of his own. He says, well, what do you think? What's in the law? How do you read it? And like so many experts, right, like so many brilliant scholars never passing on an opportunity to demonstrate his own righteousness, our lawyer explains that the law says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And to this, Jesus replies, yep, do that. You got it. Do that. You're going to live. Let that sink in for a moment. 
The law expert offers what is, in essence, a summary of the law's requirements. Specifically, he's, he's referencing to that which is found in, in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, but really he's giving a summary of all of the 600 some odd laws that we find throughout the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, Jesus himself would use this same language, this same summary, when speaking to another law expert, an account that we find in Mark 12. In that circumstance, uh, Mark tells us that uh, this law expert approaches Jesus and asks him, uh, of all the commandments, which is the greatest of them all? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is Jesus speaking. So considering that, we see that there is nothing wrong with our lawyer's response that we find here in Luke. In fact, the lawyer's response is perfect. It's perfect. It's perfectly learned. It is perfectly researched, and unbeknownst to him, it is perfectly unattainable. Think about what Elder saying earlier. One person has held to that law in the history of humanity because it's perfect, and the law demands and the law requires perfection, nothing less. There isn't room for anything less than absolute adherence and perfect submission to a legal code that comes directly from God. So this means that the, that the law can't be interpreted as love the Lord your God with most of your heart, with parts of your soul, the majority of your mind, and love your neighbor better than you do most other people. No, the law requires you to be all in. Uh, my family and I have been enjoying watching the Olympics over the past, uh, the past couple of weeks. I think it's a very, very exciting time. I love to watch the competition. So in light of the Olympic culture that we're seeing around us, uh, think of this exchange using this illustration. Imagine that a runner uh, approached a, a, an expert in running, a, a premier running coach, and this runner went to the premier running coach and he asked him, Coach, what must I do to win the 100-meter sprint? And the premier running coach says, Well, what are on the record books? How do you read them? And this runner replies to the coach, Well, if I were to run the 100-meter sprint in two seconds flat, that would be better than all the other times in history. And how does the premier running coach respond? He says, you got it, right? Do that, you're surely going to win gold. If you were to run the 100-meter sprint in two seconds flat, friend, you're going to be a gold medalist. Do that, and you will win. And that's correct. If an Olympic athlete were to run the 100-meter sprint in two seconds flat, that runner would be an Olympic champion gold medalist. So the coach in this illustration is correct to say, yes, do that, and you're going to win. What the coach is admitting, though, is that this runner's thesis of being able to do that is physically impossible. It is not possible for a human athlete to run 100 meters in two seconds. Now, the coach is not affirming that it is rightful or correct for this runner to win, a race, to win the race in that way, nor is he suggesting that the runner should strive for that unattainable goal. So let's go back to, the, to Jesus and our lawyer. We return to this scene, and, and the lawyer's summary, as we've already described, is theologically sound. It is correct. It is a roadmap for salvation, and Jesus affirms this to the man. Jesus does not, however, advocate that the law expert should live the rest of his life striving to meet that standard. Why? Because it's, something, it's not something that a sinful human person can do. The law requires perfection. For an Olympian, perfection means running the race faster than all, all of the other competitors. For those who are striving to hold to the law of Moses, 
loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of the time. I wonder um, if you, like me, have gone through times that even during personal devotion or Bible study, that it's not long before you begin to drift. Now, I mean, I know that would never happen here during a sermon at Bethel, but in your own personal devotional time, you're at home reading scripture, and then you, it's just not very long before you're, you're a couple lines into it. And if you're like me, it's, it's either your mind or more probably your stomach starts to tell you that you should be thinking about something else. So it's hard to think the, of the premise of loving God with everything that you are all of the time perfectly as the law requires. That's a challenging premise. So it's at this point that the, the, the lawyer begins to realize that his exchange with Jesus is not going as he had anticipated. So he asks Jesus another question, hoping to justify himself. He says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And uh, Jesus responds by telling this parable. So let's quickly pause and see where we're at before we, uh, before we examine the story. The lawyer has asked two questions. He's received no answers. Uh, he, is, he is asked about eternal life, and Jesus asked another question. He asked another question in response to that question. And Jesus offers a story. So what we find when we examine this parable is a real rich tapestry of teaching, and it would be impossible to cover it all in one message. So this morning, what I'd like to do is focus on four characteristics of mercy that Jesus points us to through this teaching. So the first characteristic of mercy, as he begins telling this story, is that mercy requires action. Okay, Mercy requires active participation on the part of the person who's showing mercy. I think a misperception that we, that we encounter and try to overcome in our modern culture is that uh, we perceive mercy as being the absence of punishment, right? We have two options. We can either punish someone or we can be merciful on them and not punish them. If we were to think of this in terms of the times of Caesar, right, this is mercy. Thumbs up means mercy and you'll live. Thumbs down means no mercy and you're not going to live. But the perception that mercy is simply the absence of punishment, the, the letting people go about doing things, and, and they can go on doing their things, and we're going we're to be merciful by not holding them to where they are violating the law. That's not mercy, and that's, that's different than what Jesus is teaching here. In this teaching, uh, Jesus centers around what each of the three characters does in this story when they see the man who had been beaten in the road. In fact, what each of these three characters has in common is that they all did indeed see the man who had been beaten. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, as Jesus tells this story, each saw the man, and the, the word in the, or the, um, the participle, rather, in the original Greek uh, that's used here is this Greek word, idon, and for each one of them, the same word applies. The, 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 uh, the priest saw him, the Levite saw him, and the, the Samaritan saw him. So what was different about the Samaritan? The Samaritan had compassion, and it was that compassion that drove him to take actions of mercy. Jesus, in, in telling it this way, removes the most common excuse from the scenario, that common excuse being, oh, well, well, I just, I just didn't see the guy. I just, I just didn't see it. I mean, I mean, I didn't see the problem. If I had seen the problem, of course I would have done something, but I just, I just didn't see it. Each one of the three, the priest saw it, he walked to the other side. The Levites saw him. He walked to the other side. The Samaritans saw him, though, and he stopped. He had compassion, and he showed mercy, and his mercy took action. That's characteristic number one. Mercy requires action. The second characteristic of mercy that Jesus touches on in this teaching is that merciful actions should take place when the need arises. 
So this means that from time to time, mercy is going to require that people are inconvenienced. Because that's the tricky thing about tragedy, right, and trauma, and hard times in general. They never show up when it's convenient. They never show up on schedule. Bad things happen when regular people are just going about their business. And that's exactly what we have here in Jesus' story. An account of four people simply going about their business. And it starts with this poor man who was beaten. Jesus said that he was traveling along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this was a famously dangerous stretch of road with uh, jagged rocks, narrow paths, very steep uh, inclines and declines. And clearly from the story, we're seeing a threat picture here that's not really great if you're a traveler. Clearly there's an active threat from robbers and murderers and other criminals. So we don't know much about this man, why he is traveling from, from point to point. Jesus does not include any special narrative about the occasion for this man's travel. We simply know he was traveling and he came upon bad times. The next two people who arrive on scene, both the priest and the Levite, were also presumably just going about their business. We know that from, uh, from biblical and Judaic history that priests were often required to go to the temple in Jerusalem and perform specific priestly duties um, that would sometimes last for weeks at a time, after which they would return home to the towns from which they had come. The same would apply to the, to the Levite. Uh, the Levites were, were the uh, assistants to the priests when they were performing duties in the temple. And we also know that, uh, that ritual purity was very significant for the priests upon the completion of their tours of duty at the temple in Jerusalem. And so if, if that's the case for, for Jesus' story uh, in, in, in this particular circumstance, in this parable that he's telling, this would have been keenly significant as a priest was traveling along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. A priest can't come home from the temple unclean or impure, having just handled a dying or bloody or dead man. Touching a corpse was strictly prohibited. And if the priest or the Levite, for that matter, had actually gotten down and gotten all you know, into this guy's mess and become uh, covered in blood and, and whatever else, he would have had to go back to Jerusalem, repurify himself, restart his dangerous journey along this road. To say the least, it would have been highly inconvenient and very disruptive for the priest or the Levite. Along this point, uh, there's a great New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, uh, who points out here uh, that the, the, the drama... Uh, of having both a priest and a Levite involved in this story um, and to have both of them pass this man over. Not one, right, but two members of the clergy, two members of the, of the, of the ruling religious elite are described in this story as being the ones who pay no mind to this man who lies bleeding in the road. And uh, Bach suggests that this would likely have resonated with the lawyer that Jesus was speaking to, right, because he's from that same class. He's a representative of the same group that Jesus just described as having passed this man by. What masterful storytelling, Bach says. What masterful storytelling on the part of Jesus. You have two officers whose official duties include caring for the poor, caring for the downtrodden. So when someone is beaten on the side of the road, you would expect that it would be some, like officials like that who would stop and render aid. But as Jesus tells us, the priest and the Levite pass by, the man still bleeding. Who's going to help this guy? And along comes the Samaritan, also presumably just going about his business. And Jesus, likewise, did not tell us where he's coming from, where he's going, to work or from work, to a party, to a funeral. We just don't know. Moreover, it just doesn't matter. 
the Samaritan was not concerned with being inconvenienced. His decision-making was not dominated by his schedule or his plans. He saw a need, and he responded. The -the in-the-moment need is what determined his decision to show mercy, and that's the second characteristic. The third characteristic of mercy that we find is that mercy requires us to share the burden of the one who is in need, right? Mercy calls on us to bear one another's burdens. If you remember toward the end of uh, Paul's letter to the, to the church community in Galatia, that Paul implores that community there to bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, they would be fulfilling the law of Christ. And what, what Paul is talking about here, actually what Jesus provides here, are three examples of what Paul is calling for. Three examples of physical and tactile burden-bearing. So the first is evident in the fact that the Samaritan stopped. And, and by stopping, what he's doing is he is assuming the burden of risk. Because at this point, what would have happened if the robbers had returned? We, we, we know that the Samaritan was still alive when the, uh, or excuse me, that the man who had been beaten was still alive when the Samaritan showed up. Um, he's in bad shape. He's likely, presumably, uh, maybe bleeding out, uh, but still alive. So for situational awareness's uh, sake, you know, from a situational awareness perspective, this means that the people who did this to this man are probably still nearby. They probably haven't gotten far. So by stopping, the Samaritan is assuming the burden of risk. Because if the robbers were to come back, he's going to be the target. They've already gotten everything they possibly could from this poor beaten man. If they come back, it's the Samaritan that's going to get it next. So he is assuming this burden of risk, and the Samaritan is placing the well-being of this stranger above his own. That's point one. Point two, the Samaritan birds uh, bears the burden of resource. We look again, starting at verse 34, Jesus explains that the Samaritan bandaged the man's wounds. He poured on oil and wine and, uh, and put the man on his own donkey. Um, as we know, uh, <laughs> Jesus does not describe this Samaritan as being a traveling medic. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to believe that he was traveling with a bag full of sterile bandages, nor do I think that he had a flask full of spare wine and oil that was designated for wound care. No, we're talking about a man, presumably, that was simply traveling, and everything that he had on him was that which he needed to travel. So when we read that he bandaged his wounds, he would not likely have done so with a fresh bandage. No, instead, this probably would have meant him tearing his own clothing and using those scraps to bandage up this man's bleeding wounds. Likewise, the wine and oil that he shared, while by no means a delicacy, was only likely what he had on him, enough simply to complete his travel. Nothing more. You don't want to carry too much when you're traveling on this road because it's risky and it might be wasteful. So instead, the Samaritan shares all that he has. He bears the burden of resource finally sharing, or by, by sharing his likely limited supply of stuff, everything he had. So finally, Jesus tells us that he loads the man on his own donkey to bring him to an inn. I'm not an expert in donkey riding. I think I skipped that class when I was in seminary. But presumably, what I think this means is that after loading the man onto the, uh, onto the donkey, the Samaritan's walking alongside. The donkey is a resource to the Samaritan. His own clothing, his oil, and his wine. All of these are resources, and he opens up all of them to this man, to this stranger. Why? Because he's in need. What did he do? He saw a need and he responded with giving of his own resource. How much did he give? Enough to meet the need, even if it meant depleting his own resource. 
But not only the current needs of this man, as we, as we continue reading in verse 35, but the future needs of the beaten man as well. Jesus, Jesus explains that after caring for the man for a night, he gives an innkeeper uh, a, a few denarii, which is roughly amounts to a few days' worth of uh, work. Uh, that's about the, the, that amount of money. And uh, in doing so, that's, that's obviously a marked generosity. But then he also says, continue to care for this guy. And when I come back, so some, the Samaritan was leaving, when I come back, I will pay you for any additional cost that you may incur. What a remarkable example, uh, example of the resource giving and burden bearing that Jesus is talking about. But I think there may be something else at work here as well. I want you to put yourself for a moment in the, in the shoes of the innkeeper. The Samaritan has just shown up to your inn and he has brought a bleeding man into your inn and has taken care of him for the night. Now as the Samaritan is checking out, he goes to you and says, listen, continue, continue to care for this stranger, okay? Um, here's, a, here's a little bit of money, continue to care for him. I don't really know when I'm gonna be back, but when I do come back, I'll make good for it. I'll pay for it. As a proprietor, as a business owner, does that sound like something that you're gonna entertain? No, probably not. Unless, unless the Samaritan is someone that you know. Unless the Samaritan is someone that you have a relationship with. Say maybe the Samaritan is a regular customer or a friend or someone with whom you have an established trust. Then maybe that changes that, that dynamic just a little bit. Now, I want to be careful not to read too much into, into the text, something that's not necessarily there. But if something like this were to play out in real life, it would have required that the, that the Samaritan not only cash in denarii to, to, to care for this guy, but it would have required that he cash in personal clout, right? His own wasta. In essence, he's saying, listen, I know this is a bad situation. Take care of this guy. But you know me. You know I'm good for it. You've seen me here before. You know I'm coming back. Take care of this guy. When I come back, I'm going to pay for him. Clothing for bandages, personal resource. Oil and wine, personal resource. The donkey ride, the money, both the current money and the future money, and then that personal clout. All of these things are personal resources the Samaritan shares with this man. All of these things are the physical and tactile ways in which the Samaritan bears the burden of the man who had been beaten entering into his suffering and providing the need where he needs it most. So the final characteristic of mercy that we see demonstrated in this parable uh, is that Jesus teaches that mercy is something that is offered to the needy, not something that's offered to the needy of our choosing. Okay? Mercy is something that's offered to the needy, not to the needy of our choosing. There's no precedent for picking and choosing who gets mercy and who does not. Friends, it's not possible to overstate how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They hated each other. Their hatred was ethnic, it was racial, it was cultural. They considered, both groups considered each other to be half-breeds. They, con they considered each other to be bloodline uh, polluters. They hated their respective religious customs and rituals. They considered each other to be heretics. A lot of Jews and a lot of Samaritans died at each other's hands. Not so much because of the uh, political power competitions, but more because of their deep-rooted hatred. The reason Jesus introduces the Samaritan as the hero to this story is clear. Mercy defies even the most well-developed hatreds. The Samaritan did not consider the background of the beaten man. 
He didn't look at his features. He didn't, he didn't check his ID. His actions were not inspired by or linked to a shared cultural experience. His actions were inspired by compassion. Not because the man deserved it or because he was racially or ethnically obligated to. And that's probably what the lawyer was expecting Jesus' answer to consist of. Something that talked about the, the racial and ethnic obligations of God's chosen people. But instead, the Samaritan was inspired by compassion. This point is antithetical to many modern sensibilities that suggest that mercy is a reward rather than an imperative. Merciful actions, right, especially those that cost us money or require us to give our stuff or ourselves, those are the, those are the things that we reserve for those whom we determine to be worthy of the mercy. It seems as though some people today are comfortable being the chairperson of their own mercy adjudication committees, right? Can't you just, can't you just imagine that? The mercy adjudication committee, the MAC. It's even got a great acronym. Now, hang on. Hang on, Presbyterians. I know how us reform folks love a good committee. So let me be clear. The mercy adjudication committee is make-believe. It's not real, okay? And it's a good thing. It's a good thing that it's make-believe because it's, it is contrary to what Jesus is teaching here. Nowhere in this teaching does it suggest that we should go about determining who does and who does not receive the mercy, which ultimately, for us, was first a gift from God. Instead, this teaching insists that we don't go around looking for situations that we deem worthy of mercy, which may look like, well, I'll help him out uh, because we're from the same hometown, right? Or I'll I'll, I'll give her a hand. I will show her mercy because she and I uh, go to the same gym or fitness center. Or on the flip side, well, I, I... I don't know that I can help that guy out because he voted for the other guy. Or I I just don't know that I can support a person who holds a different viewpoint or a different belief. I don't know that I can serve them because they, they think about things differently than I do. And then perhaps one of the most difficult hurdles for us to cross, one of the most difficult dynamics that I am certain many of us have encountered, I don't know that I can show them mercy because they did it to themselves, right? Brothers and sisters, the temptation to adopt that perspective is great. I don't know that I can show them mercy anymore because he's done it to himself. Frankly, we've been in this spot before. I helped him out last time. I, I, I provided him mercy and tangible things last time, and he did it to himself again. I just can't do this anymore. I don't know that I can show mercy in the same way I did before because you know what? It's on him. The temptation is great to adopt that perspective. But thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God that Jesus himself did not and has not adopted that same perspective when it comes to us and our sin. Thanks be to God that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus didn't think twice to himself and say, you know what? Upon further review, these people did this to themselves. These sins are theirs. And because these sins are theirs, and because they've done this uh, to themselves, I'm going to withhold my mercy from them. They're on their own. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a life without Christ's atoning sacrifice? Can you imagine a life without God's unyielding mercy raining down on us despite the fact that we do it to ourselves, right? Over and over and over again. 
And so, despite the sins that we have committed, God has delighted to sacrifice himself by taking that atoning position on the cross, showing boundless mercy to those who are undeserving, so too should our merciful actions be boundless. We're not called to be chairs of our own mercy adjudication committees. We're called to show mercy. When? When the need arises. How? In a manner that takes action. To what extent? To the degree that burden is shared and self is given. And to whom? To the person who needs mercy. So finally, we return to the conclusion of this historical setting, back with Jesus and the lawyer. Jesus brings an end to this exchange by asking, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was injured? And the law expert simply responds by saying, the one who had mercy on him. Very often people will look at that and say that the, the hatred that this lawyer had for the Samaritans was simply so great that he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, right? Jesus said, which of these acted as a neighbor? He said, well, the, you know, begrudgingly, the one, you know, the one who had mercy. Honestly, that's probably the truth. It's not really clear from the original Greek text what the tone was here, but it's probably the truth that the hatred was so great. But maybe, just maybe, in that moment, when Jesus asks this lawyer, who's, who's held to a certain way of, of, of thinking his entire career, maybe when he says, which of these acted as a neighbor to the other, maybe all of a sudden it was like, oh, the one who had mercy. Not the one who had mercy. Not begrudgingly with anger. But maybe the spirit in that moment moved and pierced this guy's heart, and it was all of a sudden... I get it. See, I asked Jesus about eternal life. He didn't answer that question. I asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? He didn't answer that question. He told me the story and corrected my thinking. Which of these acted as a neighbor? Oh, the one who had mercy. We've all heard the adage, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? Well, this lawyer got awful close. It's not that it was a stupid question. It was the wrong question. We don't know what happened to this lawyer. It's not clear. Wouldn't it be great to know that the Spirit would move in his heart in that time? Have that realization that the things that he thought were important, those hard and fast rules that he was asking for, he was asking for that hard and fast rule for that law, and Jesus gave gave him a whole new framework for living. Right? He wanted to undermine the authority of a king, and Jesus dismantles his entire way of life. Friends, we should all be so lucky. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? The one who had mercy. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Morning by morning, Lord, morning by morning, as we sang this morning, your mercies are made new to us. So today, as we hear your teaching, Lord, we pray that you would continue to instruct us along the ways of mercy. Knowing what you ask of us, Lord, we pray for the strength to enact. Knowing that you have placed, Lord, people around us who are in need of mercy, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength that when we see it, when we see it, we would respond. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of mercy as it pertains to us, and we pray that we would live and lean into that mercy, relying only on you for our salvation. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.